Welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church, and uh, it's good to have everybody here. It's a special day today. We have a lot of things going on. Everyone is invited to join us for the fellowship meal after church in our fellowship hall. There, we have plenty of food, so don't be shy. But we're going to dismiss the choir kids. We want to get them over there to eat quickly because they have choir practice in the cottage. And the youth choir practice starts at 110. But here's the number you have to focus on, 145. We're going to start right on time back here for our baptismal service. Love to have you stay around as two wonderful young ladies to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ through baptism at 145. Next week, Sunday school promotion day, so the eligible kids will move up to the bigger class. Yeah. And that's all the announcements for today. I'm doing the reading. George Dewey's going to do the reading. Okay. I was off schedule. Here's the reading from God's Word, John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now tasted, let me back up. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in man. Amen. Thank you, Annie, for reading our reading for Life of Christ today. Let me give you a moment to prepare your heart to worship Christ. I think you'll note in this text here that Andy just read, here you see a manifestation of Christ's mercy, of his grace, and certainly his justice, and a call to faith. And it's not so much that we believe in Jesus, but does he believe in us as it ends. So I wanted to give you a moment to think on these things and prepare your heart to worship Christ. I'll give you a moment privately where you're at, and then I'll pray for us corporately. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we have gathered together today to worship you. May Christ be exalted in our thoughts. What a gracious thing for you to send Jesus Christ to take on human flesh, to walk among us, to demonstrate all righteousness. What a great joy it would be for all disciples to recognize the glory that is in Jesus Christ and for our faith to be found and for our faith to be strengthened. I pray for your people today who have gathered around as we read your word in the various ways in which we read it, as we sing your word in the various ways we sing, as we pray, and as we explain your word. I pray, Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit to work among us, to accomplish what you will with the very word of God. I pray that you will bring people to faith and life even this day. And for those that are alive in Christ, I would pray that they will be strengthened and flourish. What a blessed day it is to praise your holy name. I pray that we would have true zeal for your house. May that consume all of us. May we find our delight increasingly in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I pray in his name. Amen. Well, good morning. Isaiah 58 says, the Lord will guide you always. Let's take our hymn books and stand, and let's turn to number 82, and we'll sing, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Number 82.
223, 223, nothing but the blood. Amen. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. First John 1 John 1.7. Good morning, church. Our reading this morning will be Psalms 124 and 125. You can find both of these on page 517 of the Pew Bible. We'll be reading in the English Standard Version. Both of these psalms are songs of ascent, the first one of David. would allow me I'd like to draw your attention to verse 7 of Psalm 124 which says we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers the snare is broken and we have escaped what's in view here is the people of Israel escaping from a hostile nation to them who would want to destroy them but it's also as many of the Psalms are a great illustration of salvation If you are in Christ this morning, 
you have escaped the snare of sin and death and hell. If you are not in Christ, today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior that you may escape. Let's begin to read in verse 1 of Psalm 124. If If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to, the, to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the escape that you have provided through Jesus Christ, Lord. I pray that more and more each day the truth would just wash over us, sanctify us, make us more like Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be our joy, Father. I pray that nothing in this temporal world would give us joy like that. I pray that Christ would be king in our lives and everything that we do. I pray that from this that we would preach your gospel, Father, each and every one of us. I pray that we would Make the glorious truth of your gospel known. Please help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. Father, I pray that you would use our offerings to further your kingdom. I pray for the men and all of the individuals who are involved in the Anchored in Truth Network. I pray that you would help them to continue to faithfully proclaim your gospel more and more each day and that you would add sons and daughters to you. I pray that you would help us as a church to do the same, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Lord, I lift up our elders to you. I pray that you would put a hedge of protection around them, their families. I pray that you would help them to uh, continue to lead us well. And I pray that we would be a submissive flock as you've commanded us to be. I pray that in all of this, Lord, that we would glorify the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.
Thank you, Amber. Please take your hymn books again and stand. Let's turn to 113, and you'll see there's a responsive reading ahead of our hymn this, this morning. So let's recite that together. Pastor, if you'd come up and 113, you'd be my worship participant. I'll be the worship leader, and then the congregation will be the worshipers. So 113, and entitled God's Ongoing Grace. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God.
again. Let's turn to number 535. 535, I am thine, O Lord. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Thank you, Blake, Amber, and Church. I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to talk about salvation by grace. We're going to pick up the thread of where we left off last time in in verse 9, but if you haven't been with us, let me give you a brief introduction and overview of where we have been and where we're going. This is the letter of Hebrews. We're going through it, and as I mentioned before, this appears to be a sermon. This would have been like a sermon you might have heard in the first century. 
preached by one of the apostles. It might very well be one of Paul's, but recorded and written in a, in a succinct, compact, and correct way, precise way, by someone else, perhaps Luke. But it is a, it's essentially a sermon nonetheless, and it's helpful to hear it in that way. In chapter 1, the author opens up by pounding out seven excellencies of Jesus Christ. And then he'll follow that up with, with seven more cross-referenced in the Old Testament. And then we get to chapter 2, and a great warning is given. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Whatever you think about salvation, it isn't enough. It's greater than that. And so he pounds the pulpit and, and calls people then to, to think on these things and think about this salvation that is in Christ our Lord. And ultimately, this is a grace. Grace, by that we mean something that is given. Not something that is merited, but something that is freely given. And it is the very grace of God that is then a in verse 9, as it's mentioned, this comes by grace. And then verse 10, in which we're going to put most of our focus on today, really is an exposition, to some regard, of some aspects of that grace. He's going to talk about the grace of God that is granted to us in Christ our Lord. He will explain it in the sense that this grace that has been given is fitting to the very nature and work of God. That its founder is this one, Jesus Christ, who perfectly fulfills the objective to glorify God in the redemption of a people for his name. This work, this grace, then in verse 11 and following, brings about a solidarity between mankind and God, which we will detail in further uh, next week. I was going to combine 10 and 11, but just thinking through it, I, it forced me to slow down a bit because I don't want you to miss the profound truth that's packed away just in this one verse, verse 10. And at first glance, it, it, it can be easily t uh, overlooked, if you will, Words are mentioned, and the significance might be lost. But I want you to look at it a little more carefully. And we'll back up and give it a context in verse 9 and read through verse 13, but our focus will be on verse 10. So if you have your text with you, Hebrews chapter 2, look carefully with me, beginning at verse 9. And pointing to Jesus Christ, he's going back to his argument about Jesus Christ being greater than the angels. And he says, But we see him for a, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, speaking of his humanity, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, 
should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will grant the illumination of the Holy Spirit to each one. May we hear the very words of Christ to your church today. I pray this in his powerful name. Amen. This is, as I've called it today, we're going to look at this concept of salvation by grace. Verse 10, if you note, begins with the word for. This is a marker because it builds on that which precedes it. All that we briefly went over, but most specifically, verse 9. This verse 10 is rooted in verse 9. It says for because of this, that is. Look at verse 9 again a little closer where it talks about the grace of God. This grace of God is granted by Jesus Christ who is made a little lower than the angels. When he he uses the word Jesus here, it is a point to his humanity. The little lower, as we've talked about before, that is, he took on human flesh. It is lower in order in that sense for than angels because angels don't die. They're not subject to death. They don't change in that regard. There are other aspects of angelic beings, a spirit being that can transverse between that which is material and that which is immaterial, but it's mostly about this death. And so angels, from the Jewish perspective at that point, from their religious idea, is superior to, to man. And so, talking about God incarnate then becomes a great stumbling block for the Jews because here you have a, you have a man who is said to be a God-man, but, but yet this is a, some sort of lesser or lower being from their religious perspective, their mindset at that time. It also then, for those that were, were not part of the religious affiliation, the, the Greeks, if you will, the, the, the whole idea of this God becoming a man, uh, particularly in that day, would, would have been foolish. Because after all, material things were thought of as lesser things, and in some cases, evil things. And so then, how could Jesus Christ take on human flesh? This is a stumbling block. It's foolishness. So this is a problem. But this problem only exists in the minds of those who would look at it from that perspective. Because what they don't know is this state, lesser in some respects, yes, because subject to mortality, is only temporary. Everything is going to change. Notice, if you jump back to verse 5 in his argument here in chapter 2, 
He's getting back to show the superiority of Jesus Christ over angelic beings and his point in why he is greater is because, note here, is quoting Psalm 8 in verse 5, and for which God has ordained mankind is glory and honor to be crowned with that. It, this exceeds all you can imagine in a glorious future, greater than his argument, than angels. But it doesn't look that way right now. <laughs> if you can only see what the promise is in the future, this is what is promised. But right now, we don't see it. So the question would then be, how in the world is this going to be accomplished? That's what he says in verse 5. Mankind in that lesser state is temporary. He will be crowned with glory and honor. And how will that be accomplished? And the answer is in verse 9. Do you see the phrase, by the grace of God? It is through Jesus Christ. Notice he says, Jesus, who becomes incarnate, takes on human flesh. He is then, verse 9, crowned with glory and honor because of death. He suffers death. And by that, he tastes the penalty by which is due mankind. He tastes death for everyone. Sin must be dealt with. It is dealt with by Jesus Christ. By God's immeasurable grace in Jesus Christ, this one who is glorious, who is honorable, he would die not for his own sin, for he had none, but he would taste death for everyone who is, note down here in verse 11, those that are set apart, that is, he calls it sanctified, made holy, those that are sanctified by the Holy One, made holy, verse 11, he this one, Jesus, then will unite with them as brothers, verses 11 and 12, and thereby united with God, how? Through faith, that is, through belief. You'll find that in verse 13. We'll unpack some of that next week. But notice, this one he tastes death for are those that are sanctified, set apart, made holy by the Holy One. The preacher here in Hebrews provides an explanation of grace, some aspects of it, certainly not the fullness of it, but some that we'll look at here in our text in verse 10. He'll first say that it is that which is fitting, or think of it as that which accords with God, his person, his nature, his work. Second, he'll emphasize the one who is the founder or the author of it, Jesus Christ. And then finally, the fulfillment of it in what he has accomplished. Verse 10, it begins, it was fitting. King James, I think, says it is becoming or it becomes That is a good idea. The, the idea of fitting or it becomes, in other words, that looks right or appropriate or think of accord. That, that accords with something. 
Now, from our perspective, we may not be so concerned about the fitting nature of grace and God and what he has done in Christ because we have God's gift. But in God's wisdom, he displays in the incarnation and the death of the Son to receive, to redeem sinners, that which accords with every perfect attribute of God. The redemption of mankind could not occur any other way. He must have it fitting. It must fit in with who God is. And, it, and we, we've read, we read the Psalms quite a bit, and it talks about justice. It talks about judgment because this is the very nature and character of God. And sin must be dealt with in some form or fashion. Because otherwise you would violate the very justice and the holiness of who God is. Justice and mercy that is granted must accord with one another. The gift that's given, it must be given in in a way that, that is fitting within the nature of God. That's what we're getting at. Now, from our perspective, when we do nice things or do other things, it doesn't necessarily always accord. It, it, it seems to throw things somewhat in discord. And not just to pick on low-hanging fruit, but our political system is quite interesting in doing that. They have a great idea. Let's forgive some of the debt of some of these students. So they'll put out an executive order for, I don't know, a trillion bucks. That sounds great. For those that get it, how about those that didn't? It, it wouldn't accord with justice to them. It, it might be grace to this one, but not justice to the other. And you, you settle the, the debt on, on the backs of those who didn't receive the benefits. What, what chaos is that? But you see, this is what God has to deal with in redeeming mankind and crowning him with glory and honor. This is not a small thing. For him to crown him with glory and honor, he's going to do so in a way that accords with his nature of who he is. And if you, if you really stop and think about it, this is just incredibly profound, number one. And number two, this is, there, there's no other way. No wonder it would be Jesus himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one that comes to the Father but me. What other way would you get to the Father? Come up with some philosophical way. It's, it's, it's not going to accord with the nature of God. And it isn't then a small thing for the preacher of Hebrews to say this was fitting. The fact that he says this is fitting, this, 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 all the pieces fit together then would cause us to respond should we see it in great glory and praise. I've been privileged to read Arthur Pink's commentary, and sometimes I think I could just pull it out and just read it for you. You can do it on your own. But this week I thought it would be helpful, it has such a good mind on these things, to help us shape this concept that I'm talking about in the fitness of God, how this grace that he has granted is fitting within his character. Pink in his commentary points out five ways. 
This isn't all the ways, certainly, but these are some of the ways, and I think he does a good job in thinking about that. And let me see what you think. He says, first, it's, it's fitting with God's wisdom. It is the attribute of God. His wisdom is evidence in all his works, but nowhere so perspicuously and conspicuously at Calvary. The cross was the masterpiece of omniscience. It was there that God exhibited the solution to a problem which no infinite intelligence could ever have solved, namely how justice and mercy might be perfectly harmonized. That's what I'm trying to get to. How was it possible for the righteous to uphold the claims of the law and yet for grace to extend to its transgressors? It seemed impossible. These were the things which the angels desired to look into, but so profound were the depths that they had no line in which to fathom them. But the cross supplies the solution. Second, he says it's fitting with God's holiness. What is holiness? It's impossible for language to supply an adequate definition. Perhaps about as near we can come to one is to say it is the antithesis of evil. The opposite of evil. The very nature of God hating sin. Again and again, in the Old Testament times, God manifested his displeasure against sin. But he never, but never did the white light of God's holiness shine forth so vividly as at Calvary, where we see him smiting his own beloved because of the sins of his people had been transferred to him. It is fitting, it accords with, it becomes his power. Number three, never was the power of God so marvelously displayed as it was at Golgotha. Where does this appear? In that the mediator was enabled to endure within the space of three hours what it will take an eternity to expend upon the wicked. All the ways and billows of divine wrath went over him. See Psalm 42. Yet he was not destroyed. There was consecrated into those three hours of darkness that which the lost will suffer forever and ever. And nothing but the power of God could have upheld the suffering Savior. Yea, only a divine Savior could have stood up under that storm of outpoured wrath. That is why God said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, Psalm 89. It is, that, it is an incredible work of his wisdom. It is an incredible work of his holiness and his power. And think of it, his holy one could not see corruption. What, what divine grace this indeed is. Number four, it's fitting with his righteousness. He can by no means clear the guilty. We're not sweeping it under the rug. It would still be there. He's just not pretending it, it, it isn't a debt that is owed. It is still owed, and somebody has to pay for it, you understand. Sin must be punished, he says, wherever it is found. God's justice would not abate any of its demands when sin through imputation, and that's the key word, that is, God could do something that none of us can, and that is actually 
lay the guilt of your sin on Jesus Christ. That's what we call about the doctrine of imputation. And he could take his righteousness and put it on you. This is only something that can be done by God. And there is no illustration in this world of it because it is beyond, exceedingly beyond his grace. Do you you get a flavor and a taste of his grace? It is fitting to his righteousness in this imputation, if you will. He spared not his own son. Never was the righteousness of God more illustriously exhibited than when it cried, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd. Zechariah 13, 7. And finally, it's fitting with his love. Innumerable tokens of these have to do with his children who receive, but the supreme proof of them is furnished at the cross. Herein is love, 1 John 4.10, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means the, the covering of it. The mercy of God over all his works, but never so fully and gloriously was it manifested when Christ became man and was made a curse for his people, that was that theirs might be the blessing. No wonder the author of Hebrews writing concludes that it is it is fitting. It is fitting for whom and by whom all things exist. This is accords with, it is fitting with the very nature of God. And only God could divine such a plan to execute a display of his divine glory in such a way to note our text in Hebrews to do what? In verse 9, to in bringing many sons to glory. I hope you get the connection then. This is how mankind would be temporarily lower than the angels, if you will. But yet, the promise to be crowned with glory and honor and in, in, a, in a ruling capacity because it'll be through our union with Christ. It is through Christ who doesn't simply offer salvation to men, some sort of plan for you to consider to partake in or not partake in. He actually tastes death. He actually redeems. He tastes death for each one he will make holy that he sanctifies. And note this, beloved, he he pays the penalty and beyond that he will then bring them to glory. How assuring it is for those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to know he will bring them all the way to glory. These men and women that come to Christ, Christ will fulfill that promise made so long ago. He will say in John chapter 6, in verse 37, all that the Father gives to me. That, that's his sons and daughters. All that the Father gives to me. 
and whoever comes, I will not cast out. I have come down from heaven. This is a picture of the incarnation. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is in God's divine cree, decree from the beginning of time. Well, what is this will? And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, that all that he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to him by which this grace will be found. The author of Hebrews immediately shifts to that right now. It, it is not only fitting and accords with the very character and nature of who God is, but then the, the, the ultimate focus is on this very person, Jesus Christ. Notice in our text that he should make the founder of their salvation, Hebrews 2.10, the founder of, our, of their salvation. The Greek word here for founder is archagos. It's used another time in the book of Hebrews. You'll find it in chapter 12 in verse 2. I'll read it for you. It has two aspects. I'll just note the founder part. We'll talk about the perfecter. It says, looking, un, looking to Jesus, the founder, and that word archagos is used, translated founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's going to point that again that Jesus is the founder of it, and two different, really, ways to think about it. This is, a, this is a word that is rich in meaning in the original. It's translated different ways. Founder here, in Acts chapter 3.15, Peter will use it in a sermon and uses the same word, but there it's translated in English as the author that is, at Pentecost, he's preaching. He uses the word archagos, the one found in chapter 2 as well as chapter 12 of Hebrews, and he says it in the way that Jesus is the author of life. That, that's within the range of meaning of that word. And it is good to think of Christ as the founder of, of salvation is also the author of it. Indeed, he is the author of life. John will say in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 3, that all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Life, L-I-F-E. Intrinsically, life is in Jesus Christ. Of course he made all things. There would be no life without him. He is the author of life, the, the founder of life. 
John will go on to describe that life to help us understand it, not only in contrast to that which is not life or death, but he uses a metaphorical language to help us get a picture, if you will, of life and uses light and darkness to contrast life and death. In him was life, John 1, 4, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it. Life is contingent upon Jesus Christ, not just for its initial existence to begin with, but its continuance in him. And Whether you're talking about human life, of how we would breathe, and carry on, or spiritual life, how we would go from death to life. Jesus Christ is the author and sustainer of that life. And in our text here, in John 1, 5, it says that it, this light, the light of life of Christ, it, it is displayed in darkness. And the darkness doesn't overcome it. There's a double meaning there. We've been through that when we went through the Gospel of John, but, but the idea is, and both of them are true, just like a light turned on in a dark place would overpower the darkness and you would see light, it can't stop it. But there is another sense in which if you were blind, you wouldn't be able to see it. So it isn't going to overcome it, and it, and it is not comprehended on its own. The life and light must come through the author of the life and the light that is Jesus Christ. Through the ages, this is what this archagos will do. This author of life, he will bring many sons to glory by his grace. It is by his grace that we would then be saved from destruction, saved from death, illuminated from darkness. It is a gift of God. It's not your own doing, Ephesians 2, 8. It is through faith that we believe in him, that person, the founder, the author, not a plan, not a program, not some sort of prescriptive acts or duties that you must engage in, but it is, do you see it? It is in the very person of Jesus Christ. Jesus would say in John chapter 17, this is eternal life. What eternal life? This is it, that you that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. Do you know him? That's the question. This founder then of salvation by grace is not only the author of it, that is the originator, but this word here also conveys the idea, and both are true, of the leader of salvation. It's Peter will use the word archagos again in his sermon later in chapter 5 of the book of Acts, 531, if you want to look it up later. 
and it described Jesus Christ as the archagos and savior. The leader and savior is how it's translated in our English. King James uses the term captain to describe this word, and I think that's a fitting word. It, it conveys the idea of some sort of authority in leadership. And we think of military terms, if you will, of a leader. He's not only the source and the originator of it, but he is one who takes the lead that others may follow. Now, when you think of the officer in a Western military, and, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, so you can correct me later, but at least in my mind, the, the, the imagery of a, of a leader in the military is one who leads from behind, if you will. They're, they're not out on the front line. You put the infantry out there to get shot at and to take harm. But at this period of time, the, the leader would have led from the front to provide an example. The captain would lead at the front to demonstrate for those that would follow an example of how to follow. And I think that's the imagery giving there of this one who is the founder of our faith. He is the leader in that he is one in which we would follow. And let me just give you three areas of leadership in which Christ calls his people to follow. And we'll look at a few texts on this if you wish. And one of them is John chapter 13. I think it's worth actually turning to. John chapter 13. A familiar story to most of you. Here he's dealing with his disciples. Eve of his death. And he demonstrates, and this isn't all that Jesus would lead in, but these are significant ones, I think. And the first is in service. They're meeting in an upper room, getting together. That's the setting, you remember. In that culture, they, when they got together like that, typically uh, if they had a servant in the house, they would wash their feet because they're dusty from the roads. Or there would be a basin and a towel there, they would wash their own Apparently, these guys got together and didn't bother anything like that and didn't have washed feet. But, you know, you're at dinner. So in our culture, we would typically wash our hands before we eat. Well, here, they would have washed their feet to gather socially, but they didn't. So Jesus takes the towel and the basin and goes around and starts washing their feet. He, verse 12 of chapter 13, he put on his... After he had done this, he put on his outer garments and, and resumed his place. And he said to them, note this, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, for you're right, I am. So, so this is the archagos, this is the, the founder, this is the author, this is the leader here. I am that, I am Lord, I am sovereign. And, and note this profound statement. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, this isn't a prescription for some sort of ritual to take place. This is reality. Not some 
performance that is, goes on to, to, that doesn't really have any significant meaning. This means to serve others, and particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, and, and the word there really is for slave. We don't use that term as much here but it, it, in our culture, but, but this is what it means. The, the slave isn't greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, so you should know them, blessed are you if you do what? If you actually do them. Jesus demonstrates this service as a leader to go forward in a sacrificial way and serve the very lowly. Here he is the the greatest, and yet he is serving as the least. A second one, and you can turn if you wish or just note this, and this is an all, just for time, I've included a few in my mind, that demonstrates who this captain, who this leader is, Jesus Christ. Another familiar concept that we we would have as Christians, Matthew chapter 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, in other words, you want to follow him, let him deny himself, self-denial. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Just as Jesus Christ denied himself of what? The greatest. In great humility, he condescends to earth. He takes on the form of a, what? Servant. Here is a submission, if you will, to the Father's will, which would ultimately lead to suffering. That's what he means by taking up the cross. It it isn't a minor thing, but it it begins with a certain self-denial. He set that aside so that he could accomplish his mission. This is, this is what a leader is. This is who our founder and author of our salvation is. Picks up his cross and leads the way. Finally, the third thing that I would say, and again, I could say more, but for sake of time, I'll just mention one more. It is suffering. You can find that in a number of places. I'll refer to this one again from 1 Peter 2.21. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Christ truly suffered, and that's our next point that we're getting to. As a leader, it isn't that he just went about and was given all kinds of privileges. He didn't have a place to lay his head. Opposition... All the time. Ultimately, they killed him. This is how this salvation then is fulfilled through this one who would lead, note this, lead the way in suffering. He would lead the way in suffering. And this is the third point. 
back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. He's going to be made, what? Perfect through suffering. Now, this is something I think it would be helpful to stop and ponder for a minute. Two concepts. One, the suffering. And two, what's this idea of making perfect? This is the accomplishment of salvation by grace. It is through the suffering of Christ by which then made perfect. Suffering here means all that Jesus went through during his earthly ministry culminating in death. And that's where suffering does culminate in. It's the end of it. You might think of just his Passion Week and as we read through the Gospels, in our Gospel reading, I hope you grasp some of the imagery and the, the pictures of what is going on with Christ. That's helpful. And most of it is noted in that Passion Week. But his suffering really was his entire life. He lived through those types of experiences that Humanity experiences. Hebrews chapter 4 and 15 talks about Christ and his mediatorial work. He, he becomes a mediator between God and man because he takes on human flesh and therefore can be a mediator between God and man. And 4.15 in Hebrews, he says we, we, we have a high priest, but we don't have one that is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect is tempted as we are yet without sin. Th that's the imagery, the whole gamut of it. What, whatever suffering humanity goes through, here the incarnate God has experienced and yet done so triumphantly without sin. And we'll emphasize that in a minute. You see what he's saying here? I hope you understand. God is omniscient. He knows about everything, including suffering. He, he didn't have to condescend to earth to know about suffering. He knows. He, by the way, he knows about sin. He knows about it. He's aware of it. He knows what's going on. But the difference is, through the incarnation of Christ, our founder, our author, our leader, in a way that accords with who God is in his nature, do you see the wisdom unfolding? He was actually able then to experience suffering. He didn't experience sin, and it makes a point there, yet without sin. He didn't experience that. He knows about it. He didn't experience it. He knows about suffering, but here, in being made perfect through suffering, he experiences suffering. Suffering, beloved, and it's a broad term that's going to include any kind of painful experiences, ultimately, like I said, the culmination of which is death. Any kind of suffering can be a temptation of sorts. 
Temptations in the sense that it will make us think in dealing with our hardships that perhaps God is acting a little too harsh on us because isn't he, after all, sovereign over all things? And some, in the depths of it, and I understand it from their human perspective, might lash out like Job's wife did in giving bad advice. Curse God and die. This is a lack of faith in belief to blame God. Our hope should be in God. There are times in which our souls, however, are cast down. And as the psalmist said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. Well, well, we are at times disquieted. We, We are at times discouraged. And that can be a source of temptation. And if you don't pass the test, sin. Sin by not trusting and hoping in God. But that experience of pain and suffering isn't sin in and of itself. Jesus suffered. He never broke. And by doing so, he, he proves his merit. Jesus Christ suffered to the greatest degree, much more than you and I would ever imagine, as hard as it might be, and I understand that. The, the call is then to look to Jesus Christ. He suffered to the nth degree and never broke. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 12, I mentioned it earlier. You might want to turn there. Hebrews chapter 12. It follows this faith chapter of 11. That's the great witnesses who those that went before and would testify of the glory and grace of God. Since we're surrounded by so many, then then our response would be, well, why don't we lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race then that is set before us. And how would you do it? Look to Jesus, and here's that word, the archagos, or founder, and then the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, see how he does this as an example of what was set before him, endured the cross. This is the suffering leading to death, despising that which is shameful, by the way. And then he is seated then at the right hand of the throne of God. Here is he crowned with what? Glory and honor. This is our one who went before us, our founder, who actually fulfills that very promise given to man. Christ has been exalted then to the throne. He's accomplished his mission. He's fulfilled it. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Look to Christ in the midst of suffering. That's the point. And then he, then he makes this strong point in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That is a verse to stop and pounder, isn't it? The, the point is, Christ was tested to the full extreme and never broke. All the way to the cross and never sinned. That's the one we look to 
who has accomplished it and has resisted to the point of shedding his own blood. He experienced the greatest weight of sin and never broke. And so by looking to Christ, then you might respond more like Job to his wife. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Beloved, you may not understand the suffering and the purpose and whatever might go on in humanity. But if that's what you're looking at is the suffering, you're missing the Savior, the archagos, the author, the founder, the leader. Do you know him? Jesus Christ. It says he's, he's made perfect through suffering, back to our text in 2.10. Now this can be unclear to us to some degree. I'll try to clear it up with the time that remains briefly. You know, there's no imperfection in that sense in Jesus Christ, no moral flaw. He had a human nature through a virgin birth to go around the Adamic nature that would have otherwise been passed on by his human father. He is the offspring of God. He never gave in to temptation. He, he never sinned. So what, what does this perfecting mean here? I'll just try to sum it up in three ways for you just to give you a picture of it. This perfecting work is, is the proving and preparing Jesus for his mediatorial work as high priest. One is in the proving or qualifying, you might think of, as Jesus. It is proving or perfecting in the sense of an actual demonstration that Jesus Christ is indeed the righteous one. You remember when he was directly confronted by Satan himself? Not, not one of his minions, but Satan himself? He took that onslaught, not in a place of great strength, but humanly in the weakest state, without food, in a desert, not in a garden, not with great provision, but great lack. He was in the, the most difficult state possible. And when he is attempted, his response is, hope in God. <coughs> Three times he quotes scripture. He looks to God and God's word. It's a demonstration of his perfection that he will never fail. He was taken to the nth limit. He could bear the weight of personal agony and never, break, and never break. He was tested to the greatest degree. This perfecting then is like putting a pure substance such as gold in a fiery furnace that the fire w w will not damage it. It only proves what it actually is and that's what's going on with Christ, in his experience, it, in the experiential world in which he walked, he, he proved that he indeed was qualified. But beyond that, as I mentioned briefly before, this prepares him also experientially. God now, in the incarnation, 
can endure through suffering and connect with man in an experiential way. Don't ever think, as hard as it might be, beloved, if you're going through great difficulties and suffering, that Christ doesn't truly know where you're at. The God of glory is perfected in in learning that experience, if you will, and is able to sympathize with our weakness, as we said in 415, but also experientially know all that you're going through. Another another text on that in Hebrews is is 5, 8 through 9. I'll read it for you. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all that obey him. This learning is learning not in the sense of getting information. This is a a true experience in which he fulfills all righteousness, obeys every command of God absolutely perfectly. And by the way, he must do so to merit the salvation by which you will stand as mankind crowned with glory and honor. That merit and that perfection comes to Christ who fulfilled all righteousness expressed here as he learned obedience. He experienced all that we are required to do. And he did it, by the way, with the maximum of suffering. Both ends of suffering and sanctification. He says, I sanctify Myself, so that I will be able to sanctify your people. The third thing I would add, too, in this perfecting, he also provides for us a physical pattern or example. I already alluded to it earlier as we talked about in his interaction with the disciples at the, at the uh, upper room where he served them. Peter puts it this way in his epistle, 1 Peter 2.21. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Ultimately, Christ then is the, the, the supreme example. Look to him. Read about him in the Gospels, Jesus will show you the way and demonstrate the righteousness as he calls you to follow him. It's one thing for God to tell us what's expected, and he does. It's quite powerful for him to show us. Look to Christ, and you will see it. I'll finish with this summary given by, I'll refer back to A.W. Pink because he puts it uh, much more succinctly than me. And we'd like to get to lunch here in a minute. He puts it this way in conclusion. As the great pioneer of redemption, speaking of Jesus, he blazed the trail through the death and resurrection 
He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. God made Christ for a little while lower than the angels so that he could come down to us, be our archagos, our spiritual pioneer and example, and, beloved, bring us to the Father. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that we will hear and heed your word, that Christ would be even more precious to us. I pray that you will grant us great praise of the fitting nature of the founder of our faith who perfectly fulfills all that is required. May our trust be in Christ and him alone, by your grace, in Christ's name, amen. Beloved, I want to give you a moment now, privately, where you are, to think on these things. If you'd like to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, do so now. If you'd like to commit your heart to him and confess sin, you could do that as well. But you're going to do it privately. Where, you're, where you are, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Look to him. Take a moment now. Father, I do pray indeed you will cause us to turn our eyes on Jesus and see your glory and grace in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 313. Take the name of Jesus with you, 313. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is 
imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Father, we're so thankful that you have done this great work through our Lord Jesus Christ for each and every one of us. Father, we pray now as we uh, go to the fellowship hall, Lord, that you would bless our time of fellowship and bless the food that's been prepared for our, to our bodies. And again, as we come for our baptismal service, we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.